This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Credible.com is an online marketplace for student loan refinancing. Using Credible.com's simple platform, it takes less than two minutes to find out if you're overpaying on your student loans. You could save thousands by refinancing. All you have to do is visit Credible.com slash magazine Answer a few questions, and right away, you've got real rates, not a range of rates, from multiple lenders. Checking your rates will not affect your credit scores, so you really have nothing to lose. The average user who refinances through Credible.com saves almost $19,000 over the life of their loan. And for a limited time, our listeners will get a $200 welcome bonus when refinancing through Credible.com slash magazine. That's Credible.com slash magazine. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 9th, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, online news editor David Grimm talks about self-domesticating mice and whether other animals became tame before humans got involved. Sinan Aral discusses the surprising finding that false news spreads deeper, wider, and faster than true news online, with or without bots being involved. And we have the last of our coverage from the AAAS annual meeting. Ben Munson and Adrian Hancock talk about myths and reality of gender and sexual orientation and communication. Do men and women talk differently? How about gay people? The answer is yes, but not for the reasons that we think. Now we have David Grimm, online editor for our daily news site. Hi, Dave. Hey, Sarah. This week, you've brought us a story on self domesticating mice. I did. Yeah. Okay. So our intern, Ronnie Dengler, wrote this one, but you have a lot of knowledge about domestication. So how does a mouse domesticate itself? Yeah. Well, you know, we don't really know most animals, the domestic animals we've got, whether they're farm animals, cats, dogs, we don't really know much about the early stages of domestication. With farm animals, we tend to assume that, you know, we we found the wild ancestors of these animals out and uh, we'd already domesticated a few things by that point. So we sort of brought them in and we did a lot of 
hardcore artificial selection until they sort of turned into the uh, livestock that we have today. With cats and dogs, a little less certain. In fact, there's some speculation that maybe these animals had started to domesticate themselves, especially cats, but maybe dogs as well, before we took a hard hand in the process. And when you mean domesticate themselves, basically acclimate to people over time. Right. The idea is with cats that they would have come into some early farming villages and the most tame cats would have been the ones most likely to stick around and deal with people and people likewise would have tolerated the most tame cats. And so there was this sort of self-domestication happening. And even with dogs, maybe early dogs followed around from campsite to campsite. They probably would have been still wolves at that point. But the wolves that were the tamest themselves would have sort of self-selected because the tamest wolves would have been able to get closer and closer to our mm-hmm. campsites until they were eating out of our garbage pits and maybe eventually out of our hands. And at that point, maybe we stepped in and said, oh, let's make oh, okay. big dogs. Let's make small dogs. Let's make guard dogs and things like that. So how does this relate to the the famous experiment with foxes where people bred them to be friendly? Right. So in the 1950s in Siberia, there was this famous experiment with Siberian foxes. In fact, they're not called Siberian foxes. They're called silver foxes, I believe. But the experiment took place in Siberia. And the idea was if we take a group of wild foxes and generation after generation select the tamest ones, so the ones less likely to bite us and maybe most likely to sniff our hand rather than try to bite it when we stuck our hand in the cage, what will happen over the course of the generations? And the researchers found that even after only a few years, mm-hmm. these foxes, not only did they become tamer, but they began to attri- acquire all these traits that we today associate with domestication, things like floppy ears, the foxes started to bark, they had curly tails. And so they acquired all these dog-like features. And all we had done was select for tameness. We weren't like, right. let's pick this color, let's pick these floppy ears. And so this has sort of come to be known as the domestication syndrome. All these series of traits, whether it's floppy ears with dogs or curled tails with pigs, that seem to come along as characteristics when an animal becomes domesticated. All right, let's talk about the research that was written about this week. And this is about mice that are self-domesticated. Can you kind of set up the experiment for well, us? Well, right. So the the deal with the fox experiment, it was very human-directed. Humans right. played a very strong role. And so the question was, is this something that could happen by itself? And nobody had done that experiment. But this sort of happened serendipitously because researchers in 2002 had put a bunch of wild mice into a barn in, in Switzerland. And their goal was basically to see how uh, disease transmission um, happens in mice and just studying mouse behavior. And the mice in this barn, they were sort of free of predators. Predators couldn't get in. They had as much food and water as they wanted. But for all intents and purposes, the researchers didn't do anything with the mm-hmm. mice. They didn't really interact with them other than sort of going in and taking some measurements. And the mice that were most tolerant of these researchers that said, okay, well, we don't mind you coming in and maybe measuring our heads or whatever. Getting scooped up once a month wasn't a big deal to them. Exactly. They are the ones that stuck around. And so after a few years, there was this population of a few hundred animals. And the researchers started to notice that some of these animals had started to sport white patches of fur. And these animals were typically animals that were uh, sort of a a russet colored. And so all of a sudden they started to get these little white patches, their heads got a little bit smaller, and they themselves became smaller as well. So there was these traits that occurred without the researchers actually doing any sort of selection on these mice. Right. So they weren't breeding them to be friendly or they weren't breeding them to change color, but the suite of genes associated with all these things started to emerge. 
Exactly. Does this give us some insight into these different hypotheses of domestication? Does it say one thing happened, the other thing happened? Well, what it shows is, A, self-domestication can actually happen. People, researchers are actually observing it. And when the self-domestication happens, that this self-domestication can cause uh, or result in a lot of the traits we associate with domestication. And it also lends credence to this idea that maybe some of the very early stages of domestication, especially with cats and dogs, were a case of these animals kind of domesticating themselves. And it was only at a later point that humans came in and started to change things even more sort of dramatically. What about the genetic component here? I mean, what do we know about the genes that link these traits together or what links these traits together? Can this mouse study help us better understand that? Scientists are start trying to home in on a suite of genes that might be responsible for this domestication syndrome. And this work could sort of help help facilitate that by showing that, you know, are these same suite of genes evolved in self-domestication as sort of human-assisted domestication? And that's still an open question. Okay. Well, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about synesthesia. This is this mysterious condition where people hear a sound and then see colors or look at a black uh, type letter and maybe see it as blue or green. And some new insights into the genes behind this condition. Also a story about plumbing the depths of Jupiter, what actually really lies beneath Jupiter's cloudy and mysterious atmosphere. For our policy blog, Science Insider, we've got a story about how the National Science Foundation has released some new rules on sexual harassment and why some of those rules are raising questions. Also a story about why a rise in nationalist and populist parties in Italy is warring scientists in that country. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the online editor for our daily news site. Stay tuned for Sinan Aral. He talks about a comprehensive study that clocks the spread of false news on Twitter. Why does false news seem to thrive on the internet? Is our interconnectedness, you know, from the web, the cause or just the platform for the spread of these unsubstantiated facts? Sinan Aral is here to talk about his group's work trying to tackle these big questions. Welcome, Sanan. Hi. So there's a lot of hype around this topic, you know, this topic of false news and misinformation campaigns on social media, in the news media. You know, we've got fact-checking articles out there. We've got social media platforms trying to clean house. I don't even know where one would start to take apart what is happening here, quantify it, and try to put some arrows in saying this is causing that. Uh, what were you trying to find with this study? We were interested in the spread of false news and how that was spreading differently online than true news. We were concerned about the potential consequences of the spread of false news. And we wanted to, when we looked at the scientific literature, we found that there really weren't many large-scale scientific studies about the spread of false news online. And so we wanted to address that with a, a large-scale, uh, much more comprehensive study. Mm -hmm. Your data set consisted of, is this all of Twitter since its inception? Yeah, we had access to the historical archive of tweets from its inception in 2006 to 2017. And we were able to analyze any stories spreading on Twitter during those years. Was that easy to get a hold of? Is that something that anybody could access? 
Well, we worked directly with Twitter to get access to that data. And we obviously used uh, machine learning and right. al- different types of algorithms to collect and filter the data. How big was this data set? It was 126,000 cascades of stories uh, spreading on Twitter over the 11 years. So fairly substantial. Three million people tweeting over four and a half million times wow. over those 11 years. And one of the things you wanted to do was to distinguish between the spread of false news and real news or true news. How could you pick those things out of a data set? How did you figure out whether something was false or true or even whether it was news? We started with six independent fact-checking organizations that had gone through the difficult process of fact-checking these stories that had come out over these 11 years And we went to their data and we found the stories that they had fact-checked. Some had been fact-checked to be true. Some had been fact-checked to be false. And these six independent organizations agreed on their classifications between 95 and 98% of the time. So we had this really nice corpus of stories that were fact-checked by these organizations over those years. And then with that labeled data in hand, we went to Twitter to find mentions of those stories on Twitter. When we found a mention, we would work backwards to the origin, the very first time somebody had mentioned that story. And from that, what we called origin tweet, we then recreated or rebuilt the cascades of retweets that came from those mentions. So that way you could see how many people had picked it up and how far it had spread over time. Exactly. Those are all stories that for some reason were chosen by those those fact-checking organizations. Was there any chance that they're focusing on things that were highly contentious? Yes. So we were also concerned about that. So obviously, a skeptic might say, well, there might be a s- selection bias in that you are working with these six fact-checking organizations. Maybe they look at sensational stories, or maybe they look at sensational false stories and run-of-the-mill true stories, and that can affect the differences in the spread of truth and falsity. So what we did was we collected uh, a second independent robustness data set where we found stories that had never been fact-checked by any of these six independent fact-checking organizations. We had three fact-checkers independently fact-checked those stories, about 13,000 cascades compared to the 126,000 in the main data set. We reran our analysis on these stories that were independently verified, not verified by these six fact-checking organizations, and we found nearly identical results. All of the results were the same. Let's talk about those results. So what kind of differences did you see between the spread of false news and the spread of true news on Twitter? We found that false news diffused significantly farther, faster, broader, deeper. (laughs) All the superlatives. In every category of information. And each of those superlatives goes with a specific measure. So the time, the breadth, the depth, the structural virality. In every case, uh, false news was diffusing farther, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth in all categories of information and sometimes by an order of magnitude. And when you say all categories of information, you're talking about political news, urban legends, those kinds of things, like different types of content. Exactly. We had a number of different categories in the data. 
politics, urban legends, business stories, terrorism and war, science and technology, entertainment and natural disasters. And you found there was a difference between those content types, but they all the trend held true for all of them. Absolutely. False news was diffusing farther, faster and more broadly than the truth in every category. But false political news diffused farther, faster, deeper and more broadly than any other type of false news any other category of false news false politics news was the was the one that diffused farther faster deeper and more broadly and here's where of course anyone reading this or listening is thinking what about the bots is this something that people are intentionally doing to propagate false political news is that something you were able to dig out of your data yeah, we've heard a lot of uh, stories in the media and, in fact, in congressional testimony in front of the U.S. House and Senate intelligence committees on misinformation that bots play a significant role in the spread of false news. So we wanted to look into this further. And in this comprehensive data set, we used two state-of-the-art bot detection algorithms set them to different sensitivities to make sure our results were robust. And we identified the bots. We took them out. And we put them back in and we did the analysis both with the bots and without. Mm -hmm. And what we found was that indeed bots were accelerating the spread of false news online, but that they were accelerating the spread of true news at approximately the same rate. So bots were pushing true news and false news in about the same way. So bots cannot explain this massive difference between the how far and fast and deeply and broadly false news spreads compared to the truth. Human beings are responsible for that. Is that what you think? Is that humans, you know, just tend to be more interested in false news? It's some for some reason. Well, this is not an experimental study. And so we have no causal claims in this paper whatsoever. We're just describing right. what we find in the data. But uh, what we did find is that the presence of bots cannot explain this big difference in the spread between truth and falsity. And so, you know, human actors have to make up that explanation. The, mm -hmm. Now, there's always differences between malicious human actors, trolls, and ordinary people who may not know that they're spreading false news or doing it for non-malicious reasons. That we didn't investigate, but when you take the bots out, the results don't change. Well, is there something about false news, fake news, that is more appealing to people, that people are more likely to share it just because it's possibly wrong, or is it very much more novel than true news? Great question. So we wanted to dig into why this might be happening, and our first inkling or inclination was to, to think that, well, maybe people spreading false news are different than people spreading true news, or maybe the network structure is different in the spread of false news. So we looked, for instance, at whether people spreading false news had more followers or right. followed more people or were on Twitter longer or were more often verified users or you know, tweeted more often. And in each of those cases, the characteristics of the users and the characteristics of the network favored the diffusion of the truth. So, in fact, people spreading false news had significantly fewer followers and followed less people and tweeted less often, were less often verified and had been on Twitter for a shorter period of time. So false news was diffusing farther, faster, broader, deeper than the truth, despite these characteristics, not because of them. So we had to seek 
alternative explanations. And we looked at one which we call the novelty hypothesis, which is essentially that maybe people retweet false news at a higher rate because false news is more novel. And there are reasons to believe that why people would want to spread novelty more than redundant information. So novel information is more valuable than information you already know. People who spread novel information in prior studies have been shown to gain social status because they're seen as being, quote unquote, in the know or having inside information and that ups their status. So we measured the novelty of true and false news by comparing the incoming true or false tweets to the corpus of tweets that those people had been exposed to in the 60 days prior to being exposed to either the true or false tweet. And what we found across three independent measures was that false news was significantly more novel mm -hmm. than the truth, which makes some sense because when you're unconstrained by reality, uh, you can, you know, make up anything you want and you can, you can achieve novelty, you know, when it's made up uh, much right. more easily. And then we built a model of the likelihood of retweeting. And we found that these more novel false tweets were 70% more likely to be retweeted than the truth. And obviously we can't make a causal claim that novelty is right. causing uh, the retweets, but it certainly was a strongly associated factor. Can we take this away from social media and say this is something people do? Can you say this has something to do with the fact that it's on a platform that allows people to communicate in this way? Yeah. So, you know, I think this is a socio-technical system. I think both people and technology have a role in this process. So, Obviously, there was false news and rumors and innuendo way before social media. You know, since the dawn of time, rumors and false news uh, has been spreading. But I do think, and we did not study online word of mouth versus offline word of mouth and compare the rate at which it was spreading across those two media. But my intuition is these social media platforms do provide technical means by which information spreads much more quickly and much more broadly around the world than they would face-to-face -face or if people had to call each other to spread that information. And do you think that there might be some different incentives online than perhaps in person-to-person -person networks? Well, I certainly think that incentives are a big part of this in the sense that, for instance, the social media advertising ecosystem creates economic incentives to spread information. Yeah. If I can get a lot of people to see the information I'm spreading, I can make money off of the advertisements that are shown next to that information. Our data show that false information is more likely to spread to more people in a shorter period of time. So there's an economic incentive to spread false information. That actually could be addressed by disincentivizing the spread of false news, by reducing the reach with which sources that spread false news can reach more people, that would help reduce the economic incentive. I was going to ask if there were anything that, is anything that could be done about this? Are there any other kinds of interventions that people might consider? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the big next question is, what can we do? And I think that in addition to this incentives point, I think there are a couple of other avenues that need to be explored. Broadly speaking, we need more research. We don't know enough about the phenomenon or about the interventions that might curtail it. In addition to the economic incentives lever uh, that I described, another one, given that human beings 
are more responsible for the spread of false news online than we might have thought, behavioral interventions might be effective. So for instance, labeling might be something that we can do. When you go to the grocery store Mm -hmm. and you uh, buy your food that you consume, uh, you have very detailed information about what's in that food. You know how many calories it has. But when you consume news, you don't have any such information. Is this source generally spreading true or false news? How many independent verified sources does this news outlet need before it can run with a a fact? Providing people with information like that could change their behavior. Now, it's very early days and we need more research because I've seen research working papers that are not yet published or peer-reviewed, some of them show that labeling can reduce the spread of false news. Some of them show, in contrast, that labeling actually increases the rate with which false news is spread. So I think we need more research on all of these levers. There's also technological solutions, algorithmic solutions. So we can adjust the algorithms to reduce the spread of false news and and dampen the ability for people to spread it. And I think that outreach and education uh, is also an important part of the story. (laughs) Sinan, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me. Sinan Aral is the David Austin Professor of Management at MIT. He and his colleagues write about the spread of false news online this week in science. You can find a link to the study at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Make sure you keep listening for the last of our AAAS annual meeting coverage. We hear from two researchers who study sex, sexual orientation, and gender in communication. Now we have a recording from the AAAS annual meeting in Austin. These tapings were sponsored by the European Commission. Girls sound like girls. Boys sound like boys. But there's probably very little physical reason for this. Before puberty, we all have the same vocal equipment. How is gender getting into our voices at this young of an age? I'm Sarah Crespi, podcasting somewhat live from the AAAS annual meeting here in Austin. And with me is Benjamin Munson. Hi. Hi. Uh, You presented on a panel. What was your panel called? Oofta. Uh, it was called Gender in Translation. <laughs> there we go. And you're going to talk a little bit about what we're keyed into when we pick up gender or sexual orientation in speech and maybe how that happens. Okay. What are some of the stereotypes people have about the way gay people talk and how wrong are they? <laughs> okay. So, Sarah, the, when you start out asking about the stereotypes, yeah. you and I were just talking before the podcast uh, began about language change and, and the yeah. moving target of language. And I think when I look at the kinds of portrayals that I saw of gay men and lesbians in TV and film growing up in the 70s and 80s, the kind of stereotypical portrayals had things like gay men speaking with a high-pitched voice, right. a pervasive stereotype of the gay men with the, the frontal lisp, the TH4S production pattern, sweetie. Mm-hmm. Stereotypes about lesbian women's speech were a little less obvious, but certainly a lower-pitched voice. You know, that's the kind of stuff I grew up with. Right. And so you did research to look at what people were actually doing as opposed to what was expected or what people thought they were doing when it came to the production of this kind of speech. What did you find? Um, So I found a set of pronunciation patterns that were, first of all, not anything that looked like whole-scale approximation of the opposite sex. So there weren't changes in the pitch of the voice, either lower for lesbians or higher higher pitch for gay men. What we found particularly 
strikingly with the gay men was engagement in sound change in progress. So mm-hmm. the sound structure of language and indeed all of the structures of language change over time. And in Minnesota, which has a, a very sort of northern Germanic dialect, I have a lot in, in my own speech. In my own speech, <laughs> I have a lot of this. The gay men in the early aughts were moving away from the traditional Minnesota, Minnesota pronunciations of words like boot and boat toward the more general American boot and boat, okay. um, away from the sort of traditional northern cities, upper Midwest bad, and toward the more um, contemporary Pan-American bad. One could say that the gay men were sort of rejecting the entrenched local norms. Um, but another possibility is just that engagement in sound changes and progress is a way of showing that you are, to use a term that, that I have read in magazines, fashion forward, right? Yeah. That you're au courant, yeah. that you're chic, right? <laughs> uh, you know, and I'm intentionally using some, some not very chic pronunciations of these words. Yeah. You know, that it's a way of showing stylistic innovation in the way that people use with clothes right. and makeup it's and hair. It's a signifier. Well, so let's talk about some of the speech, gendered speech patterns sure. or gendered speech that is observed in adults, but it's also seen in kids before sure. adolescence, before their vocal equipment changes. What kinds of things are seen in kids and how early? I myself have only looked as young as just before the fifth birthday. But even there, we see differences between boys and girls, mm-hmm. right? When I say we see differences, I mean if we record content-neutral speech from these kids, just single-word productions in a picture-naming task, and we present them to blind, naive listeners with audio-only stimuli, people rate the boys and girls sounding differently. So on a six-point scale, the ratings for the boys cluster around the value that is unsure may have been a boy, and the girls cluster around unsure may have been a, a girl. So it's still different degrees of uncertainty, but statistically robust, significant group differences. And do you know what listeners are keying into when that happens? What we're pretty confident is that boys and girls are not making any whole-scale approximations to adult men and adult women. So just as we don't see gay men and lesbian women making wholesale approximations of, of the opposite sex, the same is true in kids. When we do sort of complex multiple regression type analyses or, or you know, nested models where we're able to look at acoustic characteristics of stimuli as they pre- predict ratings, what we find is that it's often very subtle sound-specific measures that can cue these judgments. So one of the sounds I'm really interested in is the S sound, because as I said in my talk this morning, there's a lot of variation, gender-related and otherwise variation in the S sound, but it doesn't seem to be related to anything to do with anatomy. And so the fact that S variation is one of the things that listeners key into when they're making these judgments of kids' Mm. speech suggests that kids might be doing some emulation of fine phonetic detail in the adults Mm -hmm. they encounter, specific Mm -hmm. adults they encounter in language acquisition. And what about kids with gender dysphoria or kids who may later identify as their opposite of their born gender or born sex? What Right. What do you see there? Well, so we have looked at boys who are identified with gender dysphoria or its previous in the previous edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the APA it was gender identity disorder, mm-hmm. right? What we find when we look at those gender nonconforming boys is that their speech is, at least in the listener's ears and the judgments we get from our naive listeners, their speech is intermediate between that of the gender conforming boys and gender conforming girls. They're their own little yes. group. So I think you probably get this question a lot. You focus on English. Yeah. What happens if you go to another country where they speak different English or another country where they speak a a totally different language or even Spanish in the U.S.? Do you see similar patterns or is that 
is that not a way to compare things? So, I mean, I'll give you some examples of work not that I have done, but that my colleagues have done. So I have a colleague, Feng Feng Li, who is at University of Lethbridge in the Prairies in Canada. Feng Feng has studied acquisition of speech sounds in boys and girls in the north of mainland China, so north of Beijing, mm-hmm. in her hometown, which is called Songyuan. And you have something called feminine accent, where oh. uh, the three fricatives in standard Putonghua are, and I'll give them in real words, All right. xiao, sao, shao. So those are three words, and the inflection was intentional. It has to dip and rise. Okay. That xiao in uh, the north of the country is produced as xiao by the women. Okay. They call that feminine accent. And what Fang Fang finds is that by about four years of age, the little girls are producing feminine accent, mm-hmm. right? We're not going to find that in the U.S. because we don't have that sound in the U.S., right? right? So it's all very situated in Mm -hmm. different languages and in different cultures. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's changing from place to place. But there's also change over time. And you've talked about revisiting your research from 15 years ago and asking people, how does this person sound to you? Yeah. And what do you you think? What is your result? What do you think is happening? You you saw the talk this morning. So you know we have an interim analysis. So so I talked about how some of the unique things that gay men were doing in my earlier work was uh, appeared to be related to these sound changes in progress. Well, these sound changes in progress have continued on in the last 15 years since we did that study. You know, there's lots of anecdotal evidence that people in Minnesota really do sound different from how they sounded 15 years ago. Yeah. They sound less sort of traditionally northern Germanic Minnesotan. And so I have, uh, there is a student in my lab right now, Lily Obita, whose undergraduate summa cum laude thesis is answering the question that you posed. So right. she's collecting data from younger listeners now, so who match the age of the people from our earlier study, 18 to 30-year-olds. And then she's getting a cohort of listeners as if the, they were the same listeners from 15 years ago, aged 15 years. So working age adults from 33 to 48 years of age. Yeah. And we only have data from the younger adults, but what we're seeing right now is in a preliminary analysis of data from 20 of the eventual 40 subjects that we're going to collect is that people seem really unwilling to take a voice and give it a label of one, which on our scale is definitely sounds heterosexual. Right. So people seem to have sort of smashed the idea that you can sound unambiguously heterosexual. It's as if people acknowledge that there's diversity in the way gay people sound. And so the definitely sounds heterosexual label is less meaningful to our listeners now. Okay. All right, Ben, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for letting me gab on and on uh, over you. Ben Munson is here with me at the AAAS meeting in Austin. His talk was called Presentation, Cues to Sex, Sexual Orientation, and Gender Identity in Speech, Myth, and Reality. Thanks again. Thank you, Sarah. After Ben Munson and I spoke, I talked with Adrienne Hancock on her work with clinical applications of gendered communication research. She works with trans men and women to reshape their voices during transition. So if I played some tape right now, you'd be pretty good, or you would definitely be good, but our audience would be very good at guessing the gender of the speaker. What exactly are we picking up on, and where do those cues come from, and how can they be taught or learned? Those are some of the questions we're going to be discussing. Okay, that I know. a list. Okay, we don't have to answer them all. These are just the things okay. you should be thinking about as we start talking. So, mm-hmm. Adrian Hancock of George Washington University, you, you study gendered speech production and with a focus on transgender voices. Um, so, I think we should talk a little bit right up front some of the terms that we're going to be using and, you know, kind of define the things that might be tricky to talk about in other contexts. 
Sure. So I work a lot with transgender people, uh, particularly transgender women or people who were assigned male at birth, Mm -hmm. but have a female or feminine gender identity. Right. And so we call those transgender women or trans women for short and distinguish from cisgender women or cis women who are people who were assigned female at birth and have a gender identity congruent with that. And so you do a very uh, translational, forgive the pun, an application of a lot of science that's being done on right. speech production, what people sound like to other people's speech perception. So what are some of the, the scientific tools you use to kind of quantify what we're hearing and what we're saying? When you uh, did your talk earlier today, you said you showed some case studies and you said this is we measured this at this time point and measured this at a second time point, mm-hmm. we see a difference. So what are some of the measurements that you take? So some of the things that change drastically are pitch or mm-hmm. the fundamental frequency of the acoustic sound. And that is someone who talks in a high pitch is more feminine than someone who talks in a low pitch who is perceived as more masculine. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the most salient gender marker. But also there's resonance. So just because you get a high pitch doesn't necessarily mean you will sound feminine on mm-hmm. the phone, you know, with no visual cues. Right. I think we should talk a little bit about the malleability of all of these aspects of speech. So if I talk higher or I talk more low, it doesn't mean that I'm behaving more or less like my gender, right? There's all kinds of diversity in produced speech. How do you deal with that when a client says to you, I want to change my voice, I want to sound more like a woman? Right. What we have to do is figure out what aspect of their identity is going to be most important for them. And so for these clients, they want to have a communication style that is identified as a particular gender by Mm -hmm. other people. Their gender is really salient part of their identity. But we also have to keep in mind if their role as a boss or is their role as an employee. And so we think about the dimensions of affiliation and assertiveness as well. Every woman, every cisgender woman changes her assertiveness or affiliation type of speech. And trans women will learn to do the same thing. But initially we do have to kind of get out of that binary thinking of, well, this is sounding like a man and this is sounding like a woman. In some cases that's true, but there is actually a lot more overlap between those communication styles than our stereotypes permit. And what about if someone is transitioning and they're on hormones, is there an effect on their voice? Well, it depends what hormones they're on. Right. So if you're taking testosterone as a trans man, Mm -hmm. your voice will likely change. It will likely get deeper. It may not be the extent you want or at the rate at which Mm -hmm. you want, but the majority of the time testosterone changes your voice as you expect. However, trans women are are not so lucky. Yeah. Uh, when they start taking estrogen, not much happens to their voice. Right. It's really like puberty. Pubescent cisgender boys uh, generally get a deeper voice, whereas pubescent girls' voice doesn't change. Some of the before and after tape you played in your talk are pretty amazing. I mean, it really is like a different person. I can't. Ex- there's no. I don't have words. Obviously, it's very difficult to describe. The qualitative, the qualitative changes that you can hear in these voices. Drastically different. Okay, here's a hard question. How hard is it to do that? I mean, is it like riding a bike? Is it like learning a language? Or, you know, does it depend on the person? 
Oh, it really depends on the, on the person. Yeah. Uh, so many factors about the person. For some people, it is very hard because they're really breaking habits. A bigger person is going to have a harder time sounding like a stereotypical woman just because the anatomy is different and it's harder mm-hmm. to get the right resonance, you know? Yeah. Things like how often they get to practice makes a big difference. So voice is a little bit of both. It's a little bit language and a little bit motor. And so anyone who's tried to learn a language or learn a motor skill understands the more practice, the better. Right, right. Well, so you train students how to do this for people, right? You train students to later become right. Um, right. like work in clinics and help people. People do- who are speech-language pathologists learn to help people modify their speech right. and their voice. And so I'm training master students to do that. Are any of them stolen away by the Hollywood or like to become speech coaches for movie stars? <laughs> no, you'd probably make a lot more money if you were just training someone how to have the Irish dialect. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. And, and how common is this form of therapy? I mean, are a lot of people receiving this treatment in, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, and in other places? In the U.S., it's not quite as common because insurance doesn't typically mm-hmm. cover it. In other places, for instance, Sweden, it's covered in their health care, and so everyone gets ev- evaluation and, and can pursue training to change your voice and communication. So it really depends on the, the country or the healthcare system. Right. I feel like your, your key message about acknowledging diversity probably needs to be aired uh, mm-hmm. before we sign off. I have learned a lot about the diversity of communication styles and gender and how some of our stereotypes of gendered communication are not actually borne out in science. Right. And it's really tricky to walk that line of capitalizing on the stereotypes, but also not perpetuating them. And that that is a real challenge for trans women that I work with to sound assertive not think about sounding like a man or mm-hmm. not like a man. Yeah. To think about the characteristic you want to sound like yeah. as opposed to the gender identity you want to sound like. Okay. Cool. Adrian Hancock is here with me at the AAAS meeting in Austin. Her talk was called, She Doesn't Want to Sound Like a Man, Transgender Communication Interventions. Thanks so much, Adrian. Thanks for having me. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places, or listen to us on the science site at sciencemag.org slash podcasts, where you can also find links to the research and news stories discussed in each episode. This show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. <laughs>